Welcome to Living a Better Life podcast with your host, Madeline Golick. This is a weekly podcast exploring a variety of topics on how you can live a better life, not just physically, but in all aspects of what it means to be human living in a modern world. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not replace professional or medical advice. This podcast is sponsored by Ecophysiotherapy, where their mission is to educate, empower, and rehabilitate you back to health. Without further ado, please enjoy the show. And welcome back, everybody, to the show. So today in this episode, we are going to explore painful sex. Uh, My guest today is Dr. Tayaba Ahmed. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So... As with all my guests, I always like to start with tell us a little bit about you and sort of your medical background to help us build context for the conversation we're about to have. Sure. So I am a medical doctor, um, an osteopathic medical doctor, which I'm not sure if you're uh, currently seeing in the news. There's a lot of uh, debate about whether osteopathic physicians are physicians, in fact, um, because of our President Trump's physician is an osteopathic physician. And so a lot of people are wondering whether um, MDs are equivalent to DOs. Here in the United States, um, it is equivalent. Um, In fact, osteopathic physicians go on and do an extra 200 to 400 extra hours of training in a technique called osteopathic manipulation. So I'm an osteopathic physician. I don't practice osteopathic medicine in my own practice because of the time it takes and it would take away from all the other stuff I need to do in that short period of time I'm with a patient. Um, But I went on to do my physical medicine and rehabilitation residency at NYU, Rusk Rehabilitation. And I learned and I picked up pelvic rehabilitation specifically. So now I only treat pelvic pelvic issues. So anything between the belly button and the knees. Now, if a patient comes and says, oh, I'm having ankle pain, of course, I'm going to take a look at their ankle or their shoulder, but that's not predominantly my section. I used to do a lot of sports medicine, backs and hips and knees, and now I just do the pelvis. Um, and that's men and women because both men and women have pelvises. And both men and women have pelvic pain and pain with sex and pain pain after climaxing and um, a lot of similar issues with urinary symptoms and bowel issues. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a fun field. Yeah, I, I I definitely am looking forward to kind of diving into um, into this perspective. I, I just recorded a podcast not too long ago with a pelvic floor physical therapist um, from the U.S. So I'm really interested to see, you know, because it's so fresh in my mind to see what's similar and what's different between the disciplines and how we, you know, how we approach uh, painful sex in different contexts. Um, so. I want to maybe start our discussion around um, vaginismus. Um, So we're talking about a younger, uh, typically, you know, female population um, that experiences difficulty um, with penetration. So I'm really curious to see, like, how do you how do you think about it? What, What do you think are some of the common or what are some of the common findings like? reasons as to why you um, 
or reasons as to why that's happening? How do you kind of explain it to patients? So vaginismus is very interesting because there's primary vaginismus and secondary vaginismus. So in primary vaginismus, that's typically the, you know, a person who's, you know, naturally younger, um, who's never been able to have anything uh, penetrated internally, whether it's a finger, whether it's a tampon, or whether it's a penis. So nothing has ever been able to enter. It feels almost like they're hitting a wall. Um, and what's happening is the muscles are contracting vaginally. The vaginal muscles are contracting. And so it's not allowing anything to enter. And a lot of people um, feel that this is very psychological. There is a lot of psychological tension, and that's you know, presenting in the pelvis. Um, typically, you hear of women who've had trauma or abuse. That could also happen in secondary vaginismus. So they've previously had sexual penetration, um, you know, been able to use tampons. And now I've seen women in their 50s present with a traumatic uh, death of a spouse who are now having painful intercourse in their, you know, they could be in their 40s. I've seen women from hormonal changes now present with secondary vaginismus. So it's not always um, necessarily psychological. There is also, you know, physical manifestations. They could have vaginismus from uh, radiation or some sort of cancer or, or possibly a procedure that could have happened down there and that's now causing their muscles to contract. Um, so psychological is definitely like the big one. And to be honest, I that you can't just treat the psych, you also have to treat the physical. Otherwise, they're not going to be able to achieve that penetration if that's what they want. Absolutely. Now, could there be other reasons like, you know, structurally um, that they might be smaller in the vaginal canal and that that, you know, that stretch feeling then causes that reflexive, um, you know, contraction? Like, could there be a congenital or structural reason as well for for this? I mean, you know, a lot of women are smaller. They have smaller, um, you know, pelvises. And so, you know, it's, it's interesting because sometimes when I examine patients, I'll say, you know, I feel like you're actually not as tight as you think you are. Um, and they, there is that. But sometimes, yeah, you know, you can tell just based on like the frame, it could be. Um, but typically with vaginismus, it's the muscle muscular contraction that happens right before so, I mean, if we were to go by like definition, it should be right before something enters. And mm -hmm. usually the interesting about patients with vaginismus is they don't typically clench all day long. Um, so they're not necessarily presenting with urinary symptoms or bowel symptoms um, or pain with sitting symptoms. So that's, that's where it kind of differs a little bit. Okay, and, and the contraction is it is it it involuntary? I, I, I like when I see when I see it typically presenting in my practice, it's it, it's very much they don't want. To it's not do like it. exactly. It's yeah. not like they're thinking, oh, I'm gonna. I mean, I, I I'm sure there's some psychological component once they've attempted and it's been painful. Now there's fear. Yeah. Now there's fear. Um, but usually on that initial attempt, 
involuntary. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. So, um, you know, because of the age, you know, it depends. Sometimes it's like uh, you can kind of get a sense of a, a religious upbringing where intercourse was shunned or not discussed or um, some women who are in their 30s who are who are virgins because they've been told to wait till marriage um, and they have a lot of, um, you know, you know, fear or negative uh, feelings towards intercourse. Uh, so yeah, it, it's usually sometimes even when I try to examine them, as soon as I get towards their inner thigh, they, there's a lot of clenching. And so, yes, I mean, I think that's involuntary. Um, and, you know, it, it, a little bit of both, you know, a little bit of involuntary. I think you get what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, it, it's challenging to kind of pull pull those pieces apart because you know they're they're you know in some cases can be sort of clenching and anticipation and in other times you know if they're lacking that experience right there that's going to happen and they're not going to be sure why it happens right so i think it's like first attempt versus okay i've attempted and now i'm anticipating that this is going to be a painful and so they probably you know there might be an involuntary clench with additional muscles clenching as well and that's, that's kind of like dyspareunia in general. So like dyspareunia is just the fancy word for painful intercourse. And women with dyspareunia, I mean, whether they have vaginismus or not, mostly all have some sort of anxiety when it comes to having intercourse because of the fear of or anticipation of pain. Um, so yeah, that I think that's just universal and not necessarily just with vaginismus. Yes, I, I would definitely agree. If something hurts, right, our natural instinct is to tense and go into protection, right? And and that in and of itself can add to even more pain. Yes. Right, it's, with intercourse. Exactly, and then more pain cycle. And I mean, you see it classically. Uh, I ask about people who uh, grind their jaw um, with TMJ clicking, or do they have a history of migraines, or um, do they have any, you know, so those are typically the same people who are clenching their pelvic floor. And so oftentimes patients are like, yes, I do grind my jaw at night, and I do wear a night night guard. And yes, I do have a history of migraines. And, um, and so we do ask a lot of questions as, um, as a medical doctor, I'm going to ask about falls on the tailbone and any hypermobile joints and any unwanted sexual contact. And we, I do a very um, extensive history that's more musculoskeletal than a gynecologist because I am not a gynecologist or a urologist or a GI doctor. So yeah. Can you maybe talk a little bit about why you like just to help, you know, like if there's a, a young lady listening and she's like, oh, yeah, I do cleanse my teeth. And like, can you maybe talk a little bit about how that how those things might be connected? So, you know, clenching your teeth is something you is it almost involuntary as well. Nobody's trying to clench their teeth. And so that same manifestation of your, you know, your masseter muscles and your uh, temporomandibular joint is similar to your pelvis, nobody's trying to clench their pelvic floor. Um, although I feel like, you know, we're all trying to suck it in for pictures. So we tend to clench our pelvic floors without realizing it. Um, nobody's trying to, I mean, I don't know if you could try to clench your jaw to look skinnier. I don't know. That might be a thing. Who knows? Um, but most people aren't. So it's the same, the same, uh, you know, and then when people have 
you know, chronic headaches, they are constantly tensing their upper neck or their cervical spine muscles, and, and they might present with uh, tension headaches in the back of their head. So it's it's a lot of involuntary, like sometimes you see people are constantly holding their hands clenched together. And, or um, when I have patients that tell me they're, they're not anxious, but they're, they're, they're like this. And I'm like, are you sure you don't have a little anxiousness? Uh, are you about this exam? Like, let's take a deep breath and let's relax. Let's kind of let loose a little bit because I, you know, and for a lot of patients, there's fear, right? Going to a doctor is very fearful and scary. And, um, you know, I've been in that scenario when I go to my GYN, I'm like, uh, I'm not, I don't want to go have my, my annual pap. Like this is going to be weird, but it's the same fear. And, and it's, it's kind of inside you and it tends to make you clench and with this pandemic, I don't know how you guys, I mean, I know Canada is doing way better than us. So, everybody's on edge everybody's clenching everything everybody is like yeah uh, yeah we're 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 starting to see um our numbers we actually just uh they just regionally implemented i'm in ontario uh they just regionally implemented some some closures of some businesses because of uh mm. the increasing numbers so that literally just came down yesterday um so yeah I, I think you know we are living in very very stressful times and um i think a lot of us you know i don't think we've ever been taught really to stay present with our own bodies right? To feel what's actually going on in our bodies. And so likely we're just all kind of going through the motions of our day-to-day -day living, uh, not recognizing that, in fact, we are holding tension. And like with any muscle, like if I sat and clenched my fist for five hours, like it's going to hurt, yeah. right? Yeah. I'm going to blood that's flow what, loss. Yeah. That's what I explain to patients. Like, they're always like, where did this pelvic stuff come from? And I'm like, well, let's go back into your history. And they're like, well, you know, some of them have had painful periods their whole life. And I'm like, well, imagine every month you're just like tensing your abdomen and you're holding it tight and you're crawled up, it curled up into a, you know, a little fetal position, or let's put, you're a investment banker and you're sitting at a desk all day for 12 hours a day. And you're super high, you know, high, like, you know, stress and you're more of a type A personality type that's like stressed out, can't leave work until everything's done. And what are you doing? You're clenching. And now you're not urinating on time or you might be holding your urine or you're, or you're so anxious that you're urinating every 10 minutes because you're like, I need a break. And that's kind of the way you're taking a break. You know, there's so many um, different scenarios. And then all it takes is like the perfect storm. It's just like the perfect storm. And all of a sudden, you're, something happens, you get a UTI or something, and then all of a sudden you present with pelvic floor dysfunction. And that's, um, well, pelvic floor pain. So dysfunction just means there's something up with your pelvic floor. So whether it's good or bad, or I mean, there, it could be loose, it could be tight, it could be anything. Um, but pelvic pain usually presents when patients have an overactive or tight pelvic floor. Absolutely. Yeah. I, and I like that you bring up the, the, the perfect storm because, you know, um, oftentimes, you know, we'll hear clients like this kind of came out of nowhere. It just, or, you know, I had a UTI, I did the treatment and like, it got a little bit better and then it got worse again, but now there's no bacteria. I don't know what's happening. Um, and in fact, there is quite a bit of a lead up to that, you know, it just happens like the straw that breaks the camel's back, you know, like exactly. I'll get a client coming in being like, I went to bend down to pick up a pencil 
like a pencil and my back started, you know, hurting to the point I had to lay for four days and then think like, how could that happen over a pencil? And it's like, well, it's likely not the pencil, right? Mm -hmm. It's everything that's been leading up to the perfect, you know, it was just like the perfect condition and that's pain. Pain's an, an emergent property, right? It emerges when the condition, it's like asking how do the clouds form? Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Like there are it certain doesn't con- just happen. Yeah. You need the conditions, you need the pelvic floor and you need the stress. And, you know, I do this like investigation on each. I like having new patients. Right. Cause when I get to, I get to be like, okay, let's write down and figure out what caused it. And then I'll brainstorm like different ideas in my head. And they'll say, well, I had this fall when I was 10 years old and I had some pain. I couldn't walk for like about a week. And then I was like super high stress or perhaps I was sexually abused in college or something. And then, you know, and then, you know, basically for every patient, I'm trying to like figure out what, what was their pathway that caused them to get to that perfect storm. And then Honestly, most of the time it doesn't matter because treatment is very similar unless there's psychological stuff, which in case I would add in like a cognitive behavioral therapist or a sex therapist or something like that. But if it's just like classic hypertonic pelvic floor, fell on my tailbone after skiing like four times, maybe, you know, toxic pain or um, if it's musculoskeletal causes, like I've been spinning for, you know, 20, you know, hours every week, you know, there's a lot of adjustments that can be made and different things like that. But, you know, if there is, you know, psychological stuff or my history of hemorrhoids and I had this hemorrhoidectomy and now all of a sudden I'm having crazy pain. Well, is it the hemorrhoidectomy that did it to me? Do they do it wrong? Is It's probably not the hemorrhoidectomy. You probably have chronic clenching, crunching forever because you were constipated and now you have hemorrhoids. And so this, the, the straining is probably actually the bigger problem. So similar, you know, yeah. Like when patients say I had an IUD placed and now I'm having pelvic pain, how could it be the IUD? Did the IUD, I've had IUDs like all my life. Now all of a sudden this IUD, did what did they do? Did they put it in wrong? It's not that it's usually, it was the, you know, the straw that, that bit the camel's back. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, and, it can be it can be difficult um, for people to kind of break that down. Um, and I think that's kind of where we try to come in and, and try to piece these things, um, you know, together for clients so that they can kind of start to see, OK, you know, how did this all you know, how did this all come, you know, come about? Um, so we've talked a little bit about so we've talked about vaginismus. Um, and we brought up dyspareunia. What are some other reasons women can develop dyspareunia? Uh, I mean, endometriosis is a very, very, very big topic, and that could probably take in an hour in itself. Um, but endometriosis, very simply said, is tissue that looks similar to tissue that's inside of the uterus, now presenting outside of the uterus. Um, it can present on the bowel, it can present on the bladder, the pelvic floor, it could be actually in your lungs, it could be on the appendix, it could be everywhere. Um, essentially, it, you know, it's kind of like a benign cancer because it can grow elsewhere. Um, it doesn't cause you to die, although um, there are studies that say that it can turn into ovarian cancer and that could cause you to die. Um, but it causes people to have hyper you know, hypertonic uh, uh, pelvic floors, there could be, um, 
you know, actual endo down inside that's causing actual pain when it's during penetration. Um, and so, you know, and anything that could cause your pelvic floor to be hypertonic can cause pain. So, you know, if you have colitis, you can have pain if you're clenching your pelvic floor because you're, you know, you're IBD constipated, um, you know, any really, any condition that's, if you have interstitial cystitis, you can have uh, painful intercourse. You, there's really no, you know, when people say, but that's so weird, I have colitis. Like, how could I have painful sex from colitis? Like, oh, I thought they were totally separate. Um, then there are a lot of gastroenterologists who don't really see the connection. But if you look at a cross-sectional view of your pelvic floor, your bowel, your bladder, and your uh, uterus sit on top of your pelvic floor. So everything is entering through that pelvic floor and, and can, can then cause your muscles holding up those organs to be tight. And so um, I tell patients like your bicep and your tricep, there's no line between between the two saying, okay, I'm gonna be tight and I'm gonna be loose. That's not how it works. You know, you can have tight uh, adductor muscles in your inner thighs, you can have uh, tight muscles in your, in, your, in your core, you can have tight muscles. And so then it eventually leads to your pelvic floor, similar to your hip. If patients pe present with um, a labral tear or an impingement in their hip, they can also have um, pelvic floor dysfunction and, um, I, you know, I see that very often where they're like, wait, you want to do an internal exam when I just have hip pain, you don't need to go inside. And they've been, but they've been to physical therapy, like uh, orthopedic physical therapy for years and years and years and years. And they're like, but I'm not any better. Why am I not any better? And then we actually examine their pelvic floor and we're like, look, this part, the missing link has not been addressed. And then you start talking and you're like, well, I guess I do wake up at night to pee, which is not normal. Um, or yeah, sometimes I feel like I don't fully empty my bladder and now I have to go back again. Um, and it's like quicker than like an hour. So that seems like a little, un but you know, they don't really pick it up or it hurts just a little bit when my husband thrusts, you know, um, during intercourse, just a little bit, not a big deal. I can deal with it, but yeah, it does hurt. And that's been going on for a while. Um, so it's not always, you know, it's not always like an easy connection for people to realize the connection of all three, but once they do, they're like, whoa, I, I, I didn't realize I could fix all three with just fixing the pelvic floor. Absolutely. And, and it's interconnected with fascia. Uh, not only that, but you can also get crosstalk through the nervous system from different organs that are trying to say, hey, I'm really unhappy, you know, and it may be an IBS type of situation, number one, that then turns into a bladder situation. Again, like you said, right, you're yeah. you're clenching, you're uncomfortable, it's, it hurts down there. Um, maybe you can't make it, you know, maybe you don't have a bathroom close by oftentimes and you really got to go. So you clench even harder. Right. And then you get into these patterns that over time, yeah. you know, impacts how those muscles function. Exactly. And then that, that dysnergia, like you're talking, like the connection between the brain and um, a lot of people will have like MR defecographies done and we can always have imaging done to see if there is that connection or um, here we call, I mean, it's probably called the same thing, the balloon manometry yeah, um, yeah. where they, you know, do it, they 
try to see if, if your extra, your levator A9 muscles can actually do what they're supposed to, or maybe biofeedback could help them. Or so a lot of it's like diagnostic and therapeutic at the same time, um, but can teach us a lot about whether what we actually think we're doing is what we're doing. Um, and so that's a super useful tool for when patients are in therapy. Absolutely. Um, childbearing times, right? Um, obviously, that's that, you know, there's, there's definitely a lot happening down there, you know, after after birth. Um, what are some of the common reasons that you see painful sex during those times? When they're pregnant? Oh, after, after. Oh, oh okay. Oh, after sex. Um, I'm sorry, after pregnancy. So, you know, a lot of people think, you know, oh, I'm going to be loose when I get out, when this baby comes out of me, everything's just going to be like loose. And then you get to talking to them and they're not actually loose and they're having pain. Um, well, you know, many, for many women, they have pain during their pregnancy. So that pain not, not may not, and there's a good chance you're probably going to have pain after your pregnancy. So osteitis pubis, which is like an inflammation over the pubic joint, um, sacroiliac joint pain is very common. I mean, by the time I had, my pain started with my first one. Um, I felt like my hip was going to break. I, I couldn't walk on it. Um, and it didn't even occur to me that it wasn't my hip. It was my SI joint. And I got, I ordered the belt and I got, it was too big for the belt. I mean, so I couldn't even wear it. Um, and then by that time it, it went away. But for some women, SI joint pain is the entire pregnancy. So, I mean, obviously with the hormones, um, not obviously, but when the hormones are, if your pelvis are relaxing, that relaxing hormone, it, it makes everything looser. But when your hormones, uh, you know, go, go back down or now everything could tighten up, your pelvic floor can be tight again. And so a lot of people just assume, oh, well, I'm having pain after pregnancy or childbirth and I'm, and it's, it's, and I'm having pain with sex. It's, it's gotta be hormonally driven. Um, so many times they go to their gynecologist because there's not a ton of physiatrists out there. People aren't usually coming to me first. Um, you know, so I don't really, I don't really have to worry about them it being a hormonal issue because most of the time, by the time they get to me, they've already tried like some sort of estrogen cream or they've already tried like um, something like, but usually women childbearing age don't necessarily need an, an estrogen cream. Um, but a lot of GYNs are like, uh, I don't know what to do, or they're not necessarily trained in, in um, examining muscles. And I've, I have, a, you know, gynecologist patients like who've told me that they just don't know how to examine muscles because they were never taught how to, and they were just kind of taught to focus on, you know, looking for the cervix. And that's like, and you know, something that she's like, oh, I'm trying to teach all of my residents to not just examine, you know, looking, you know, the cervix and the ovaries and the uterus and actually focus on the pelvic floor muscles as well. Um, so if it's a muscular issue, yeah, you can present uh, with tight pelvic floors. You're, you're so high stress you have this baby, this is like a new, you know, a new life for you where you're barely sleeping, you're high, you know, I mean, I, it's highly stressful for a, a new mother. And then there's all the hormones going crazy. So if you're still nursing, a lot of people will say, you know, once you stop nursing, the, the pain might go away. And if it doesn't, then yeah, it's definitely something to look into, whether it's something musculoskeletal. And if you're still having lingering pubic bone pain or SI joint pain or hip pain, you have to address those things too. 
Um, so those are like the major things I, that I see. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there could also be scar tissue as well, depending on, yeah. um, episiotomies or, or some trauma with forceps or, you know, th- there could be actual, you know, uh, trauma. Perineal that- tear. Yeah. And that's actually forgot to mention. I do see that um, sometimes when women have had tears and then they're re-sewn, sometimes this, 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 the sewing, when they are putting in the sutures don't necessarily match up. I've seen like puckering actually at the stitching site, which is uh, just means that like it didn't really adhere properly. Um, I've seen patients still have clitoral burning. Um, sometimes that dorsal nerve of the clitoris actually, you know, whether it's entrapped or irritated or inflamed or something, they might now present postpartum with like ongoing clitoral pain or pudendal nerve pain. Um, and that's, can be due to the perineal tear and, you know, depending on the degree and how their recovery was. I've seen patients actually had to redo their, their uh, sutures because they've been in so much pain right after. And um, it's, it's something very difficult to treat because uh, by the time they're taken seriously, sometimes um, it's many years out because, uh, you know, many people will start with their OB and their OB uh, will feel like, you know, this is at this point, there's not much we can do because now the baby's out and, and OBs are, you know, mostly about the pregnant women and maternal. And that's, patients don't really understand that maybe this is now something that I should take to a gynecologist. And, and so here in the U.S., like, you know, the gynes and the OBs are not necessarily, they don't do all do that, depending mm. on where you are. Like in, where I am in Manhattan, um, there are GYNs and then there's OBs. There's very few that kind of do both anymore because there's just so much to do. Um, but, you know, in uh, suburban or rural America, you, you, you'll find like a family practitioner who's doing OB and GYN and family practice. So, you know, it really depends on where you are, but sometimes it takes a really long time for someone to get um, to the right place to figure out what's going on. Yeah. And that's a good distinction, you know, to make, right? Because some, you know, here, I mean, here we have OBGYNs. So by definition of those uh, anacronyms, um, I know that they're practicing both, uh, but perhaps some of the practitioners don't handle both. Like some might just be strictly uh, obstetrics. Um, So uh, that you're right, they may need to go somebody who practices um, the gynecology aspect. So that, that that's a really good point to make because people might not be asking those kinds of questions. Like, you know, are you are you only practicing OB? Do you do the GYN? Um, well, if they feel like they their their symptoms are being kind of brushed off, you know, or you know, like oh, it'll go, it'll go away, it'll get better eventually, or here's some lidocaine, you know, just put some lidocaine on there, you know, that's where there are pain management doctors and there are you know gynecologists and cosmetic gynecologists and reconstructive gynecologists, you know, more people who are more specialized in that type of pain. Um, so don't just feel like you have to go to your OB because many times, you know, once your OB sees you, she's going to say, well, it looks good to me, but that's not necessarily, you know, working with the nerves that isn't really necessary. Most OBGYNs are not prescribing the neuropathic pain medications that I'm prescribing because, but I'm also not prescribing hormones. So we, you know, you have like, you, if you find someone in the right wheelhouse, essentially. 
Yeah, yeah. But just knowing that there are additional options is, uh, I think, an important key um, because, you know, sometimes we'll take it at face value of like, yeah, okay, my doctor says everything looks fine. And then they just kind of continue on being, okay, well, I have this pain, but everything looks fine. Uh, And, and, you know, it's not until years later that they figure out, oh, like there's a whole bunch of, yeah, a whole bunch of other things that could have been done. Um, So again, just really important and that's usually when they find me. So they're all like annoyed at themselves that they they hadn't, hadn't found me earlier because they didn't realize that pelvic PT and pelvic suppositories and pelvic injections and pelvic, like the stuff that I do, um, they're like, wait, these things exist. And social media has helped quite a bit. So patients are able to find sooner, like on Facebook groups. Like I feel like nobody younger than me uses Facebook, but um, they're, they're on it for the groups because the groups are big sources of information. Um, you know, I'm actually in like the one pelvic floor dysfunction group in there because I don't know, someone told me to join and I joined. And then when I was a little more free, I used to like answer questions here and there, but obviously you can't answer medical questions specific to the person. Yeah. So it yeah. has to be very vague and you know, there's a global physio group that I somehow snuck into because when I needed a physio in like India and I was like, how do I find someone? And I'm sitting there Google searching like India pelvic therapist. And so it's, they're good resources. Yeah. Yeah. I I definitely agree that there are certainly a lot more um, resources out there and a lot more mention about pelvic floor physio and different ways of, uh, of approaching. But again, you know, if you don't have if you don't have the knowledge to know what to search for, right, you may not come across that information. And, and certainly, of course, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of individuals are looking for their physician, right? They're looking yeah. to their doctor to guide them in the, you know, guide them in the, in the right yeah. direction. And that doesn't always happen. Uh, and it could be for a variety of, uh, of, again, different reasons where they, the physicians they themselves don't know. don't know what pelvic PT is. I mean, I've certainly had to educate yeah. You so know. I, what we try to do in our practice is whenever I take a history from patients, I write a detailed list of all the physicians they've seen, um, any therapist they've seen, and, and we try to go out to them and call them and let them know that we're seeing their patient. This is what we're doing for them in the future. If they have patients that have painful intercourse or who have, who are just chronically getting UTIs, but they're chronically coming back negative on culture, um, then it could be pelvic floor dysfunction. Um, just naturally by the age of the doctor, you know, it's unfortunate, but you know, if you don't keep up with the continuing education, oftentimes you don't learn about these new conditions. I mean, I've, I've had patients time and time again, come to me now with persistent genital arousal disorder or hard flaccid symptoms. And, you know, they've, they literally are reading about it on Reddit because they can't find any resources on medical, uh, let medical websites or medical pages on it. And um, they're reading about it on like Cosmopolitan magazine. And, and these are not good resources. So we've tried our best to like kind of put out articles about it and more research about these more vague. Um, and if you think pelvic floor dysfunction is not talked about enough, like those symptoms are, you know, way way it's like really it's like literally searching for gold finding a doctor who treats like hard flaccid or persistent genital arousal 
There's yeah. so I've talked to so many like psychologists. Like I've, I've, I'll have patients who are like, no, but my psychiatrist told me it's all in my head. And I'm like, no, 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 this is a real symptom. I'm going to call your psychiatrist and explain to them that this is not in your head. And they're like, and I'll talk to the psychiatrist and they'll be like, really? This is a real thing? And they just, you know, it's been, there's so many new things that are coming out and um, med school I tell people this all the time. Med school was like when you were like the smartest, but we didn't learn about endometriosis in med school. We didn't learn about like PGAD in med school. We didn't learn about, so you can't just be like, oh, and then also now I'm like 10 years out of that more. Like, so obviously I can't go based on what I learned in med school. I have to go based on what I'm learning now. Um, and that that's why a lot of people will be frustrated by physicians. And and I, I hear that because, you know, you know, I, I just think we have to remember to find the venue you need to be in, like find the lane you need to get in because um, not everyone in every, not everyone's going to be in every lane. And yeah. I, yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's a journey to find the right, you know, find the right practitioner that will acknowledge what's happening. Um, because, you know, I, I just did um, not too long ago, like uh, a podcast with um, Dr. Susie Gronsky from the U S about heart flaccid. Right. And, yeah. and the, the research is not really there right now. Um, and, you know, there are, these are real, symptoms like the person is experiencing it sure there's definitely psychological components that um play a major role however they also can create psychological things can create physiological change right there is a biological component 100%. right the mind like the brain so, the mind and the body are not separate they literally are one unit exactly what an osteopathic believes so an osteopathic physician in here in america the physician that they go on, on the unit that the body is a unit, everything is connected. So for patients with PGAD and hard flaccid, what I've noticed, I mean, just this week I've noticed is, you know, I, I have patients who have set who are in their seventies who have PGAD. And then I have patients who are in their twenties or teens that have PGAD. And then I have patients in their forties. And what I've noticed is that the coping skills are different between the ages. Not that, the symptoms are different, the coping skills are different. And so when the coping skills are there and you have different, uh, you know, techniques, you tend to be able to be more, you know, be able to deal with the symptoms differently. Whereas you see a lot of people in their twenties, very emotional, crying almost every time you see them um, and just absolutely miserable. And that is why there's such a high rate in, you know, PGAD patients. Not can you because, just define, can you just uh, define quickly PGAD um, and what it is? Persistent genital arousal disorder. Um, so a lot of times I'll say persistent genital arousal disorder and a colleague will say, oh, that sounds so awesome. And it's not awesome. It's miserable. It's difficult to deal with. It's, um, it's, it's, it makes, it literally takes away people's ability to work. Um, they can't sit, they constantly feel this arousal and they can't make it go away. Um, many times they will try to orgasm and orgasming does not make it go away. Only once have I ever seen that orgasming actually made it go away. And I've seen people in their teens who've had it 
and they're just like absolutely distraught and want to like quit college and quit, you know, school. I've seen people in their sixties who are like about to retire and just go into retirement because they're like, I don't know what to do. Um, but what I, but what I, my point was, was that, you know, depending on how you, you are able to cope with it because there is such a psychological thing with it. It, it leads to a lot of stress and a lot of anxiety. Um, and you feel like you can't go anywhere. You can't drive anywhere because if these symptoms make you feel and you're itching and you're touching it and you're like the clitoris in, is, is, is engorged and it has this arousal, um, but you don't know how to make it stop. And that's really disturbing. And so having a good therapist or a psychiatrist on board is key because, um, then we can actually work on treatment. Working on, we're treating treating the actual symptoms is much harder if emotionally you can't 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 handle like the um, I don't know how to say the it. Overwhelm. You, it's the overwhelm. It's overwhelm. Yeah. Right. Exactly. You, you just it's it's difficult to figure out like where do I put my brain? Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Like where do I put my mind? Because my mind has no no other focus other than this symptom this thing um you know that can also lead to magnification you know hypervigilance you know all sorts of things that can result from a physical presentation so i'm curious um in your practice like what is it do you oftentimes from a physical standpoint is it tightness do we relate it back to is it related to tight tissue we find that majority of these patients are tight. Now we don't know what their baseline was. We don't know where they were before this. Um, uh, there are uh, there's so many different theories on this. There's a lot of people who feel like it's coming from the lumbar spine, sacral nerve roots, um, Tarlov cysts. Um, we find that it's you know there's there is concomitant pelvic floor tightness, and so by working on that, we can um, decrease their their, uh, their symptoms. Sometimes, um, I mean, you know, there has to be something with the nerves causing this. Now, you know, whenever patients, whenever I see a patient, they're like, is my, are my muscles the problem or are my nerves the problem? And most of the time it's both. It's not just one. And then the arteries and veins travel with nerves and there can be a problem with those too. And so, you know, getting that blood flow into your pelvis getting those nerves desensitized, getting those muscles relaxed, all of it is kind of what we do and try to, you know, improve their, their overall pelvic health. And again, tying in that oftentimes that mental component, yes, exactly. right? Because you gotta, you know, you gotta be able to, to relax mm-hmm. the mind to also relax the body, to relax while doing the techniques, um, you know, to know that you're going to be safe, that it's going to be okay to, you know. I I mean, I was shocked when I saw this woman, she was in her seventies and she was so composed and I was like, you're here for PCAD? And she was like, yep, I've had these symptoms for like, and I was like, you're handling this really well. Like, but she was so, you know, I think she just has been through her whole life. And I mean, I know when I was a teen and in my twenties and I'm in my late thirties now, I handled things very differently. So can you imagine now you're in your seventies, the wisdom you or the way you're able to handle 
like she's now living through a pandemic. I mean, and she's just so composed. She was, I was like, wow, you need to teach my other PCAD patients, like how to like, because now we can actually work on your symptoms and they can actually help. It's kind of like when I tell patients we're, we're treating chronic pain, your brain is not the way it used to be. So when you have pain, if you take like an Oxycontin or like a, an opiate, you're that, that a feeling of like euphoria you feel, you're not going to feel, you're never going to be able to take another medication that's going to make you feel that euphoric. So by taking those, you're really like actually not, you're going to make it worse for yourself because you're never going to be able to feel that relief because that relief, well, one is really strong for a reason. And it's addicting. It can constipate you. It can make your pelvic floor even more tight. So we don't, we're not an opiate practice at where I work. We don't treat opiate. We don't use opiates because so many times patients who come, they're so desperate. They'll say, Oh, I got a couple of like five Percocets from my primary care doctor because they, they knew I was in a lot of pain and I feel amazing when I'm on it. And I feel like I could just sleep the whole night. And it like, that and the mental component, it's like, how do we get them back into like, just like a regular, like a irregular state so that we can actually treat the actual problems. And so that's why people have, you know, fine treating patients who are not psychologically, um, you know, able to cope and who are also on opiates, very difficult because those two are like the, probably the hardest because we could treat physical and you'll feel it. And then, and then, you know, obviously there are patients who are able to cope and there are patients who, who aren't on opiates. And, and that's, those are like our easier patients, you know, that aren't, but the ones that ha are unable to cope are very, you know, they're hard. It's a, it's tough. Well, that's just it, right. That, the that the, you know, medications, I think people need to understand what they're really for and like how to use them properly um, because they're not good long-term use because of course the moment you stop taking them, right? Cause you feel good, right? You take the medication, you feel good. You're like, woohoo. Um, and the symptoms are unaddressed. Um, the moment they come off of it, they're going to go back to that that previous reality, right? Because the medication yeah. takes you out of the, takes you physiologically out of one state, yeah. but your baseline, you go back to your baseline state and you, and, and it's very difficult to see that you can move beyond that baseline state um, without. Yeah. Without like you can, medications. Yeah. Like you and can. And by medications, we yeah. mean like of opiate medications, yeah. not like there are neuropathic medications that I'll use and prescribe that work on desensitizing the brain or work on um, the nerves. Like I don't typically use medications that are not going to help the nerves. They have to be help worth like willing to help the nerves. Like otherwise I'm not going to use it because the problems are when patients have are typically with nerves. Now, obviously there are medications that help with bladder symptoms and, you know, I'll also use some of those, but usually that's part of the urologist, but um, yeah, exactly. So under, and when I say coping mechanisms, you can do this all without antidepressants. You, you know, you could talk to a therapist, you could use headspace apps. You can like patients who are usually in tuned with meditation who can actually do it and 
feel and remind them themselves like this was a time when I don't have like, Oh, when I meditate, I don't have pain. So what can I do so that I don't feel that pain? If you can, I always tell them try like whether it's coloring, like when I'm coloring with my kids, like I'm not thinking about anything. I'm just literally coloring, staying within the lines. If you can do something that reminds your brain, you're not in any pain or you're not feeling anything additional. Um, those are that, that's what I mean by like, kind of finding a coping mechanism. Yeah. Well, the different techniques to, to bring you into a different state of mind or a different state of, of being. So you can see that it's not always the same, that mm -hmm. things change, that symptoms, um, you know, they flow. It, there's, there's a flow to life. It's, it, we're not in a stagnant position. And oftentimes, you know, when you've had pain for a long time, you kind of dissociate from the area, you know, exactly. for some people, they, there's just like, what pelvis? I don't have a pelvis, you know, yeah. um, because it's just so overwhelming that the brain goes, okay, well, this is just too overwhelming. So let's, let's put it into a, in, you know, into, into a box. Um, and it can be difficult to move forward with treatments when things are really, really flared and aggravated. And I think yeah. that's a great place where medications can come into play that allows things to settle down for us to be able to start the process, yeah. but it's not meant for you to stay, you know, yeah. meant to stay there. Right. Yeah. Like, so it's more for me, it's more like long-term. We have to think long-term, not short-term. Like if you take a Percocet and you feel great for short-term, well, that's great. But now what about long-term? So long-term, I'll usually use some medications that are just kind of put you on simmer. It's like having the stove on simmer and it's just kind of staying in your system at a very low dose just to kind of desensitize you for a period of time um, so that you can start to get a sense. And I say, do pain logs, like right after pain, see what your numbers are. Are they improving? You know, are, and obviously take away things that are aggravating you. If spinning is aggravating, if you, or bite, you know, if you're a I have, it's funny because like, you know, I'll say this to some people, I'm like, are you a horseback rider? And sometimes they'll be like, yeah, I ride horses all the time. Like, or I'm a, a catcher. And when I play softball and I have the pain in my pelvis, like, um, you know, so there's certain activities that, that flare people. Now, if the, if the activity makes you feel good and you get endorphins from that activity, even though it's something that would otherwise classically flare you, then maybe that's worth it. And so, you know, it's really about, finding the activities that make you feel good and, and, and taking away the ones that make you feel bad. And, and then, at, and then at some point when things are better, reincorporating those activities. Yeah. Solely graded, graded exposure. Like, let's try a little bit. Let's see how it feels. Um, you know, what I really get the, get the sense of in all of my discussions with um, different practitioners is that, you know, we, it's going to be individualized, um, our approach, um, that there's different phases to the rehab process, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, you know, the first phase is like really a lot of education, mm -hmm. helping you find ways to, to cope, understanding what pain is, trying to get you to see that, symptoms can change to start to build a little bit of momentum and then moving into the more challenging, you know, aspects of the, the therapy. And then once you're kind of feeling better reintegration with the things that you love and find meaningful. Um, so it is a journey um, to figure out, you know, what are all the things that led up to your, you know, painful sex yeah. um, and, or any really 
Anything. symptoms related to the pelvic region or into the genitals and then figuring out, okay, what do we, you know, how do we break this apart into chunks that are, you know, quote unquote digestible, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's true. And I mean, you know, we always, always, always start with pelvic therapy before we do anything. Um, but, you know, the, the, the thing about being a physician is that we can order imaging here we can look into the labrals, hairs, we can look into the, you know, if there's any impingements, we can look for MR neurographies here in the US. We, I don't know if you guys have them out there, but we'll look at the pudendal nerve and see if there's any entrapment. It's very rare, um, but you know, every now and again, um, we look for endometriosis. Does it always show up on imaging, which almost, almost always doesn't, but you never know. Sometimes, um, you know, a lot of patients are like, no, my MRI was clean. I don't have endo, I can't, even though I'm on the floor every month, you know, in the exact same spot. Um, and, you know, understanding that, you know, but we can help them get into endometriosis excision specialists and, you know, giving medications. Like I've since COVID started, I've seen a lot of patients on telehealth and very simply I'll give them suppositories and nothing else and tell them to, you know, maybe get, do some PT or telehealth if they can't. And they're like, they've had so much relief just for those like period days or, um, you know, there's so much that they can do that they don't realize. And a lot of people are averse to taking things orally because they don't want to have a systemic effect. Whereas if you enter some, enter something vaginally or rectally, um, it feels less scary. It feels, and it does have less systemic effects. I mean, there's a little blood supply. So yes, you might have a little bit of tiredness, but those, those side effects are not there as much as if you do it, um, orally. So, a lot of patients are, um, they're just like excited to be able to be like, oh, I went from like a seven out of 10 to a six out of 10. And I, I always tell patients, you're going to get a little bit better. I cannot guarantee you, you will get, you know, you'll have no pain, zero pain. And obviously that's my goal, but patients have to be able to see that they've made gains. They've now I'm able to walk, you know, five blocks as opposed to one block. Yeah. Or, you know, I, you know, it's really, really gauging how good you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Getting, getting uh, some sort of small, small win to move in, in the right, uh, in the right direction. And, um, you know, telehealth, you know, if you can access in person is an excellent option. Um, yeah. Start getting some help. Um rather than, you know, waiting and then having to deal with not only what what you're coping physically, but then coping with what's going on in in the environment as well. So, um, you know, telehealth is is an amazing, amazing option. And even from a pelvic PT perspective, I'm I'm doing telehealth assessments and treatments as well and and getting good results with that as well. So if people are listening and can access in person, like do not underestimate the power of telerehab um, because it it, 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 it it can help tremendously. Even just the validation, to be completely honest, like so many, like in the history taking the validation of symptoms, people just want a diagnosis. They want to know it's not in their head and it's real. 
And, you know, that's in itself huge. I've been having patients using their wands with their pelvic therapist and doing it virtually. And they've been teaching. Patients have loved it. They're like, wait, this is actually empowering. I can use this wand at home. And my PT taught me how to use it. And I can use this on a regular now. And when I'm in a pain flare, whereas before they would go to PT once a week, but if they, if they were in a pain flare, they had nothing. And so now they're, they've actually feel like a little bit more free because now they're like, I can do something, um, at home. And I think that if anything, that's the one thing we've gotten from the pandemic. Yeah. Self-efficacy. That's one of the things that I've, uh, has been both a shock for, for me, but for my clients as well, seeing, oh my God, I can actually do things for myself and feel better is so empowering that yeah. they they can be self-sufficient. So I think it's, it's really amazing. Um, if people are interested in reading more information, like more information, because you mentioned you put out um, educational pieces, um, you know, if people want to just learn more, follow you, find you, where, yeah. where can, where can people find you? So I am on Instagram. I'm uh, at sign Dr. D-R-T-A-Y Ahmed, A-H-M-E-D on Instagram. I have a pelvic uh, pain specialist community on Facebook. Um, I'm not as active on that. Um, I I am, I'm probably more most active on my Instagram and people can reach out to me there. Um, If they'd like to schedule a consult, um, you can always reach out to me there and I can take your information and have someone give you a call to schedule something. Our website is pelvicrehabilitation.com and we do have groups uh, locations throughout the U.S. Unfortunately, we're not outside of the U.S. yet. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I would love to come to Canada and work there. I don't know if my degree would work, but yeah. <laughs> that I that I don't know. Um, <laughs> however, uh, just for listeners uh, that you know are in the U.S. and are looking for um, making that connection. Um, and I mean, even Canadians that want to like just follow you and like see your info, um, we'll put all the links in the show notes to make it easily accessible. Um, I want to thank you so much for coming on and talking to me uh, about this very topic. Um, it was very educational for me and hopefully educational for for others. So thank you for taking the time. No, thank you. It was such a good conversation. So I really appreciate um, the time and having me on because I feel like you were like reading everything I was saying. Like it was, it was great. I, I, I love when that connection, you know, yeah. just, just happens and, and it flows really, really well. Uh, yeah. So thanks again. And of course we always want to thank our listeners for joining us. Uh, you know, be sure to share it out. Cause again, you don't know what you don't know. There could be somebody suffering um, that may need to just hear this as a, you know, beacon of light. Uh, so share it out, make sure you subscribe. So you stay up to date with the latest and greatest podcasts and we will see you on the next uh, episode. Take care for now. Thank you for listening to Living a Better Life podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our show to stay up to date with our latest and greatest episodes. We would also love to hear your comments, suggestions, and reviews. Thanks again. Until the next episode. Bye for now.